Welcome, everybody, to Kremlin File. And today we have Stephen Hall and John Seifer joining us, both managing operations in the CIA for 28 years. And we'd like to give you a grand, grand welcome to the both of you. Hey there. Hi, guys. Nice to be here. Thanks for having Thank us. you. Both of you worked in Russia. Did you see a change um, with the intelligence services from when they went to KGB to FSB? I was in Moscow uh, twice, in the, once in the early 90s and then, uh, you know, in the, in the 2000s. And, you know, when we were there in the early 90s, that was a big question because, you know, there was sort of that big, that big sort of, you know, shift that was going on in Russia in Soviet Union. Mm as to whether or not, you know, there would be some sort of evolution in, in you know, in the KGB and are, you know, are we all going to have, I, there were some fantasies uh, back at CIA headquarters that, you know, Moscow station was going to be like Paris station and we we're going to have normal relationships. And of course that all turned out to be, you know, just a pipe dream. Right. Do you think right. they're more right. dangerous uh, right now? Mm-hmm. Like as far as because mm. the Soviet Union didn't have money to, you know, buy Western influence, whereas now, and plus there were, very clear lines that as an American, you couldn't work with Soviet officers because, you know, you'd be deemed a traitor where now these lines are kind of blurry. So do you think their services now, because we don't have a clear foreign policy, it's even more dangerous for us than it was under the Cold War? I think I think you're you're going to see uh, an increase. And I'm sure we'll talk about this probably later in a, in a, in a different context. Um, but I think Russia feels emboldened. Putin feels emboldened. I mean, look what he's getting away with. He's, you know, he's poisoning and almost yeah. killing people in some places successfully, killing people outside of Russia. Uh, you know, the most recent example being, you know, Navalny, who was poisoned inside of Russia. Uh, but then, of course, when he came back, it was immediately, you know, sentenced to, uh, you know, a lengthy prison term. Uh, of course, there's a lot of precedent for that guys like Khodorkovsky and the yeah. rest of them who serve long prison terms just for being politically active. So, I think that they're actually, I think we're actually going to see because Russia is sort of feeling its oats in terms of this hybrid warfare and, and active measures campaigns that it can undertake successfully against the West. I actually think they're, they're potentially more dangerous in that context, uh, or certainly as dangerous uh, as they've ever been. I would, I would okay. agree with that. I think one of the things, I mean, nowadays they're, they're able to weaponize some of these disinformation subversion efforts. Uh, you know, using social media and things that, you know, in, in the past, when they created the fake story that the U.S. and the Pentagon created the AIDS virus, it, it took, you know, three or four years to make that right. to make its way through yeah. the subsystem into the Western press. Nowadays, you can pump it out and bots yeah. and things can just sort of weaponize it and push it at the speed of sound. Um, I, I don't know that Russia itself is a bigger threat to us these days yeah. than the Soviet Union was, but their services continue to play the key role in defending and pushing what the state is up to. And, you know, it was Lenin that said, you know, with the bayonet, as long as you hit mush, keep pushing and until you hit steel, yeah. push back. And the problem is That's that we've it. never yeah. really pushed back. And so Putin continues yeah. to to use these services because it's his primary weapon and to push and assassinate and subvert and all those things. Yeah, John, John makes an important point, a distinction between like the security services and I guess, you know, Russia writ mm-hmm. large. I mean, I think it's it's there's a large consensus out there, certainly in the U.S. government, that if it were ever to come to a conventional war with Russia, you know, short of nuclear war, you know, there's there's really there's really no no comparison. Uh, Russia is a fading military power, despite its activities in in, you know eastern Ukraine and and, and Syria. Um, But you know what it's done is is that Putin has turned to the tried and true. Not only what he knows, but what really you know Russia, the Soviet Union, has always done, uh, which is reach into its its you know security services. 
and uh, use them, you know, aggressively, uh, whether it's, you know, via cyber or via, you know, active measures uh, operations. That, that's been s- such a long tradition. It's, it's really hard for, I think, a lot of Westerners to understand. They think of, of intelligence services, security services as sort of like the CIA or, you know, yeah, the German BND or whatever service, which is focused on collection. Um, the Russians, uh, I, I once had a really, really fascinating conversation with a Russian intelligence officer who said, why do you guys put so much emphasis on collection? We put emphasis on collection too, but our real focus is on using that information. We don't just pass it yeah. to some policymaker. We collect yeah. information so that we can kill somebody, embarrass, you know, somebody. And that's, Jesus. that's how, you know, the Russian state uses, that's how Putin uses his security services much differently than we do in the West. Um, let's say during the period of 2016, the election itself, 17 intelligence agencies had come up with you know, an, a unanimous conclusion that Russia was actively interfering you know, in order to get Trump elected. Let me ask you both, when did you first realize that you know, we were under attack? When was that moment? Was there a moment, one moment or no? To those of us who have been working mm. on Russian issues for so long, it was so apparent, whereas to many other people, it seemed to be something something very new. You know, maybe the aggressiveness of what Putin was up to was a little surprising because, you know, he hated Hillary Clinton so much. But, uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't surprised, certainly by the time the Steele dossier came out, um, mm. you know, whether or not the details in the dossier were true or not, the kind of things that they were talking about, about how the Russians, you know, sort of weaponize information that they collect internally and how they would you know, use cyber attacks and they would use places like Assange's uh, business and those things all sort of mm. rang true. And then when you put it together with sort of, you know, what the Trump campaign was doing, they were essentially doing things that are very Russian, <laughs> Russian in tone. It was almost sort of gangsterism, yeah. gangsterism on the yeah. politi- political level. Yeah. You know, <laughs> many of the people who worked for him had long experience in Russia. All of them lied. All of them, when they were you know, caught with those lies would continue to lie or attack anyone who could hold them accountable. And so, you know, those things were not necessarily a surprise to us supporting Russia, but the fact that, that someone in the American political system would be willing to collude, yeah. converge, work with whatever word you want to do, you know, Russian intelligence it was, was shocking because, you know, and part of the problem is I think We've come to a place where in U.S. domestic politics, we see the other party as the enemy as opposed to foreign actors. You know, the re- we, we don't see the real enemy as the enemy. We see other Americans as the enemy. Therefore, it's OK to cooperate with people like Russia. And I think until we purge ourselves of that, you know, we're, we're, in, we're in for really deep problems going forward. Yeah. Yeah, I was, you know, I, I anybody who's judged, anybody who's looked at the history of things, you can go back to, you know, especially when you're looking at disinformation campaigns from abroad, you know, 2007, 2008, the Russian attacks against Estonia and subsequently Ukraine. Um, you know, so all of us kind of knew, everybody who was watching knew that they were capable of this. Um, but then when we started seeing some of the stuff that John was just describing, uh, you know, you're like, oh, geez. And, and frankly, that's, that's really what pulled me into the, into the public realm. Um, I mean, I, I don't know that there's many intelligence officers. I'll defer to, to John as they dislike, but there's not a whole lot of former intelligence officers, retired guys who are like looking for stints, you know, on television or, you know, doing podcasts. Most of us have, you know, quieter things uh, that we thought we would be doing because there's not a whole lot we can talk about about some of the stuff that we were up to. Sure. But when you see, you know, an American administration start to, by all appearances, fall under the direct, 
control might be too strong of a word, but certainly under the direct influence of a guy like Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, you, you get really concerned. And, you know, I'm going to quote John back to himself because I think when you talk about the Steele dossier, you know, there's a lot of detractors and as time goes on, people are going through and nitpicking. But I think the question that John asked, I think, in an op-ed a couple of years ago, which is that, okay, yeah, there's problems with the dossier. It's a lot of raw intelligence, yeah. but where's the innocent explanation for it all? Can, you know, even if only 1% of the dossier is true, how does one explain that? There's a lot of people who are willing to pick at it. But when you see something like that, it's like, you know, red blinking lights going off and, and it's like, holy yeah. crap balls. We got to take a look at this if it's actually happening in the United States. And that, that was kind of my gradual reaction, I think, as I began to see more of this okay. stuff. Okay. Yeah, I okay. actually was disappointed yeah. that the dossier went back to 2013 because honestly, I mean, Trump has had dealings with Russia going back to Soviet yeah. days, you know, and the fact that they started at 2013, I mean, they lost a few decades of information, but I mean, it's, it's everything that's happened. I, you know, whether the facts were a hundred percent correct, we don't know, but these are the tactics they use and have used over but, and but over. At least to his credit, mm -hmm. Christopher Steele, you know, whether, you know, he, he didn't have access to a, a nation state like he did when he worked for MI6, yeah. you know, and he'd collect this stuff through commercial means. And probably some of these sources are decent and some less so. Exactly. But to his credit, when he found this out, he went to the authorities. He went to the British. He went to the FBI. None of the people around Trump, despite all the Russian money and all the Russian att attempts ever approached the FBI, ever approached authorities to deal with it. They covered up and lied about it instead. And so, exactly. you know, when you look at Christopher Steele, he's being attacked by the right over and over and over, but at least he did the right thing when none of them did. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, again, both of you worked in authoritarian countries, particularly Russia. Anybody from the region, like uh, 2016, set off alarm bells for us because we were like, oh shit, this is happening. Like for me, I was like, this is Ukraine over, all over again. And then, you know, you see Manafort come out and I'm like, oh my God, this really is Ukraine all over again. But when was your particular moment, Trump announces candidacy, and then right away we saw he started attacking media, journalists, uh, his opponents, you know, calling for jailings of opponents. I mean, lock her up. We're in a democracy. You don't just, you know, lock someone up for the pleasure of it. That's what Putin lock someone does. Up. When did yeah. you realize that yeah. he was attacking from inside our the foundations of our democracy i i mean i don't know if there was a if there was a like an oh shit moment where it's like oh okay well now we're you know there it is um you know there's the first round i mean i think it, we saw some gradual um some gradual stuff happening uh you know a lot of it electronically on the internet and then you began to see you know where it was tracing back to and, and a lot of people started paying more attention so for me it was it was it was more of a gradual thing. Um, but I you know, the, the thing as I look back on on the Trump era, which I try not to do unless there's distilled beverages. Around, <laughs> um, but as you look back, uh, you know, one of the one of the like gut level, like literally nausea type of reactions uh, was I recall when, you know, when Putin and Trump came out on that stage in Helsinki. Yeah. Uh, and he said, you know, I don't have any reason not to believe, you know, what Vladimir Putin is telling me about, you know, his innocence and Russia's non-intervention. And I just, you know, obviously there was a lot going on before that, but I remember being in a hotel room in New York watching that and thinking, you know, you know, people always say democracy is fragile, you know, but everybody kind of thinks, well, yeah, but we're in the United States of America. And 
Mm-hmm. You know, what are the chances that things are going to roll back and we're going to turn into, you know, some sort of dictatorship? And then you see your president come out and say that. And, and you all of a sudden you realize, well, Jesus, maybe we're closer than we think. Yeah. 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 John? I would say, you know, having, having sort of lived in Russia and worked on Russian issues and studying Putin, the thing that eventually sort of got to me most was that essentially Trump has sort of very, very similar mentality in some ways the same. I mean, that has sort of gangster mentality, you know, making people around him complicit. And so, you know, if you start to look at what Putin does to suppress politics and keep people using straw men and these type of things at home to uh, to keep power, I think we saw Trump starting to do that. And as that sort of yeah. that pattern continued to be and it became clear that that's his way of governing, it was really trouble. So both both of them use chaos and disinformation inside the political system. They attack anyone who could hold them accountable. They're both comfortable using extra legal means to achieve their goals. They hate outsiders. Um, they believe rich people and powerful people are above the law. They don't hesitate and, in fact, use lies as, as a regular part of doing the business that they do and shred legal norms. Um, they, they both, you know, uh, treasure sort of loyalty over expertise. They sort of shun experts and 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 they and blame others and and then they both trade in conspiracy theories and so in some ways they're very similar in the way that they that they operate and the problem is you know we thought we had a system and a you know massive government system with intelligence services and justice department and all of these yeah. you know public servants that sort of protected against that type of thing and wh- what's unfortunate is when somebody like this gets a personal following um, they sometimes can sort of override you know many of the the, the norms and, and breaks that we put into the system. And so, you know, I think probably, and I speak for Steve is, you know, we were very, very concerned. I'm the same way. I would never have spoke out publicly and got involved publicly really if it wasn't for seeing what wow. Trump was capable of doing. Um, and I think, you know, we thought that four years of that was damaging enough. It, it, the notion that if he had won the election yeah. this last time, or if he comes oh, back, no. I, I do really worry about the, the health and the, and the stability. And he's still attacking yeah. America. Yeah. You know, alarmingly, alarmingly, yeah. I would jump in. I mean, you know, this is not just the United States. It's obviously alarming, you know, for those of us mm-hmm. who are, you know, American citizens or living in the United States or associated with the United States. Um, but there's been some really good writing recently. There's just a piece, I think, yesterday in, uh, I can't remember what, what we're on the, we're on the internet. And, and Apple Bond has written a lot about, written a lot about this. It's not just the United States. We're seeing, we're seeing not only democratic erosion across the Western democracies, but we're seeing greater organization on the parts of authoritarian regimes yeah. to speed that up. And of course, that's always been yeah. something that Putin's been interested in. But now, you know, the Chinese are jumping on board, you know, the, uh, all these states that we used to refer to as rogue states. But then you look at even places like Hungary under Viktor Orban and the yeah. rest of them. I mean, it, so it's, it's, it's not just an American concern. It's no. a democracy concern. That, that really, one of the things that keeps me up at night. Is there anything that can be done, let's say, on a certain level to protect journalists? You know, yeah. every president, every government is probably, uh, you know, at one point or another unhappy with, with the press. It's part of how a democracy works, obviously. It's, it's, it's an important it's an important role. They don't always get it right, uh, but they're always asking those questions, and that's important. That's got to be protected as as part of a as part of a democracy, um, you know. But again, I don't know the answer to the question. But God, if we had, if you had told me five years ago, you know, we're going to be asking yeah. about how to better protect uh, not not yeah. just journalists in Russia, but those in the United States no. and other Western countries, I would have been, come on, you know, we, we don't live in you know we don't live in a third world yeah. country. Yeah, it's right yeah. out of the authoritarian yeah, playbook, right? Yep. So you yeah. you attack yeah. anyone that can hold you accountable. We saw Trump tear into the FBI, tear into the CIA, tear into the Justice Department. 
And, but the first thing they go after is the press. And, you know, he coined, you know, his genius, if, you know, it's hard to use that word with Trump, but is, is, is to use simple sort of phrases that get a big following. So the term fake news became a, you know, an easy bat that people could use for anything they don't like. And, you know, that's, that is very Putin-esque as well. Yeah, definitely. How did you both feel about being constantly referred to as deep state? Because I mean, growing up, you know, <laughs> growing up, you know, in like, uh, like with that mindset and constantly reading Russian news, like that's all you've heard is deep state, deep state, deep state. I mean, they've been talking about deep yeah. state since John F. Kennedy. And yeah. <laughs> then you see Trump come out and say, oh, Deep State is doing this. And I'm like, what? Like, am I watching like RT right now or am I watching like American news? Like yeah. what is happening here? How did it feel <laughs> to be under that attack when, I mean, my goodness, you go to the CIA headquarters, you see stars with people who sacrifice their life without uh, us ever yep. knowing their name. And then to have him attack and rip apart every agency, I mean, everything in order to to grab power, basically, like any other dictator does. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, you know, it's, I, I just, I, my reaction when I heard, you know, deep state, you know, and of course everybody thinks, you know, CIA, FBI, NSA, that's, the, you know, we're the deepest of the deep state. I just cracked me up. It's hilarious. I mean, my favorite, my favorite uh, sort of example for, for, uh, for people who either don't work inside the government or certainly don't work inside a CIA is, you know, we're lucky if we can figure out what meeting room we have to go to to talk about something. So, you know, the idea that the idea that that somehow we would, you know, I don't know, be able to, you know, pull together, you know, across across the federal government, let alone with inside any one large organization and be able to do the stuff um, that was that the deep state continues to be accused of. Uh, is, is, is just, is just hilarious, uh, to me. But unfortunately, you know, it, it's in, in, in the world that we now live in this polarized place, uh, that we're in now, there's people who are willing to try to grab onto that. It's, it's yet another conspiracy theory, uh, that, right. uh, that people want to try, try to grab onto. But to me, it's just, it's just friggin' hilarious. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I mean, well, the deep state is essentially just a group of, of professional public servants. And I can imagine if you're a president and you think whatever you happen to think at a personal moment, should just be taken and run with when you get pushback from the bureaucracy. Uh, you know, if you're a conspiracist, conspiracy theory, you can train that and use that shorthand of deep state. Whereas those of us, you know, Steve knows this well. First of all, the CIA is actually a really small organization with not a lot of political clout and power other than the information it provides to policymakers. Um, and, and so, but we have to follow the law. I mean, in fact, from the beginning, that's, you know, we're just beaten into us that, yes, we do break the law overseas on behalf of U.S. foreign policy. But to be able to do that and do it credibly, we have to follow regulations, laws, uh, you know, regu all, all those things just to make sure that we're doing things right inside. And so when a president wants to do something that is unconstitutional, illegal, wrong, you know, we will provide our best guidance or we will say that that's illegal or we can't do that or that doesn't make sense. Or, you know, having we live in these foreign countries, we can explain what works and doesn't work and, and what are the downsides of certain actions. So I'm sure when a president like Trump, who's not terribly smart, you know, comes up with something, says something and somebody pushes back, he wants to look for some weird conspiratorial reason as opposed to right. this is how our system works. We're a system of laws.
Yeah. How much damage did he do, like, inside the agency itself? Um, I, you know, I, I think that um, my, my impression is that, is that there was, you know, especially in, early in Trump's presidency, um, when he was highly critical uh, of CIA, um, you know, sort of famously tried to go over and, you know, stand in front of that wall of stars that you were referring to uh, earlier and, and sort of make up. But, you know, he was obviously just never comfortable with this role that John has accurately described that the agency has, which is, you know, providing information, providing truth, uh, providing intelligence. And, you know, whenever it went against something that Trump wanted to do, he had a tendency to lash out. And I think that there was damage done, um, you know, not only to CIA, but probably FBI and others as well. But the good news, I think, is, is that um, one of the things about our system I've, that I've seen over the years is that, you know, it does it is very administration dependent. Uh, CIA and other intelligence collectors will always be there to serve whatever, you know, whatever administration is there. But when that administration clears out, a new administration can, can, you know, change the tone, uh, even change the collection directives. Um, that oftentimes happens. So I think that the damage that Trump did, it was more to, it was more damage to Trump's relationship itself, the administration's relationship itself with the agency, as opposed to actually doing um, you know, significant long-term fundamental damage uh, to the organization, uh, as, as okay. it were. Okay. I would, I would sort of second that. Um, the one thing that's that's actually good about the resilience of CIA is essentially they have a director that is put in by often put in by a new uh, mm -hmm. president, not always. Um, but everybody else is professional. Everybody, all the way up through to right. the director. So it right. isn't like a whole slew of you know political people move into the into the building when. Yeah. A, and Gina, you know, whether you agree or disagree with some of her things, was a professional, was largely trying to protect the organization as she knew it growing up. And so I don't think it had great impact inside, but I do think it had a lot of impact on our relationship with partners overseas. Yes. I mean, people don't realize mm. that a good, I'm making up this number, but I don't know, 75, 80% of intelligence that the U.S. government comes yeah. across, comes across by working with our foreign friends and yeah. partners who want to yeah. work with us secretly on, on issues of, of mutual concern. And when our president sort of undercuts them, craps on them, and, and it can't, seems that he can't be trusted to protect those secrets, it's a real problem. And secondly, Steve and I, our job is to find sources of information, to recruit people, to commit espionage against their country, to provide information the U.S. government can't get any other way. And if they, and oftentimes the one thing that makes us able to do that is not because we're geniuses or we're great spies or anything, but because we represent the United States of America and the United States of America around the world is seen as something different, special. Yes. And so if you're in a country that, you know, is corrupt right. and problems and you are upset with your regime, you might see that reaching out and helping the United States of America is, is a sensible thing to do for the future of sort of mankind, if you will. But if the U.S. is seen as a corrupt, corrupt, dirty sort of country that lashes out just like everybody else, you're going to be much more hesitant to, to share that kind of information or put yourself at risk. Right. And so I think... The, the damage that was done was often overseas. Um, I think domestically, it, it sort of was pretty resilient. Now, if a new Trump administration comes in, I think the one thing oh, Trump has learned oh, is he's not going to be putting professionals in his positions. He's going to be putting sycophants yeah. and, and you know, nut jobs, and then real yeah. damage can be done. Well, just remember, yeah. think about the time when when um, when Trump had, you know, Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov in, his, in the Oval Office. That was my moment. It was, you know... And was oh, yeah, jaw jacking with him about, oh, we got this great intel from turned out to be most likely the Israelis. Um, but, you know, he was also saying things like, oh, yeah, I just, you know, I'm really worried about the Mueller thing. So he was talking, you know, inside pool 
to the Russians in the Oval Office. So set aside for a second what message that sends to the Russians. Yeah. If you're whatever intelligent, there is no doubt in my mind that our liaison relationships, in other words, our relationships with our foreign intelligence partners. Um, if I had been in charge of a foreign intelligence service during the Trump regime and, and somebody had come to me and said, do you really think we had to pass this really piece of sensitive Russian information wow. to the Americans? My wow. first question would have been, well, when's Lavrov going to show up again in the Oval Office? Because God only knows what that guy's yeah. going to say. So no, let's hold it back. And wow. that is, ex- that, that is a threat. Not, I mean, that's a threat to U.S. national security. It's to be taken really very, very seriously. Actually, and we'll that's never incredible. know. We'll, we'll never know what right. wasn't shared with us. Actually, so, I had two wow. moments. I think I had asked you about the moments. My two moments, I think that really just blew my mind were the Lavrov meeting. I mean, it was just incredible to have Taz journalist, not American journalist, Russian journalist. Yeah. And yeah, that was the other and thing. And Taz yeah. is known Taz, yeah. as a cover for Russian spies historically. Yeah. I mean, so yeah. to have mm-hmm. and them laughing in our Oval Office. I mean, this is our Oval yeah. Office. Yeah. And I mean, and then sharing of the secrets. And the second moment was with Erdogan when his thugs beat up protesters outside the White House. Yeah. And the fact that yeah. nothing was said. And if anything, Trump probably loved it. It was like, can you teach me pointers? You know, yeah. that that really oh, sent a message for all the authoritarians, you know, uh, who commit human right crimes across the uh, across the world to suppress, you know, movements. So those two, I think, were so damaging to us. And luckily, you know, thank God, I think the bureaucracy saved us. Huh. Um, going back to journalists. So we have to protect, um, you know, the free press and whatnot. But my biggest frustration over the past five years has been how they covered Trump. I mean, it was always more, they did excellent reporting. They did excellent investigations, but a lot of it was very sensationalistic. They marginalized people who saw there was an actual authoritarian threat. I don't think they started using authoritarian until probably last year. And now you see, you know, at least thank God now they're sounding the alarm about the future of our democracy and the threat we're under. But at the same time, they always they also gave um, platform to people like Lukashenko or Putin just now, Lukashenko last week. How dangerous is that to allow to give platform to these dictators when I don't think they're properly like under trained and understand like what Putin is, uh, for instance, and that he'll use that 45 minutes as propaganda that streams across, you know, millions of American households like what can we do? And is it even necessary to have these type of interviews? to have Putin on our TV? Yeah. Personally, I think those interviews are, you know, it, it, it's something they've sort of done for a long time and people see that as somehow breaking news and it's not news. These no. dictators know how to manage and manipulate the press. And part of the difference is, you know, I think you're right. There's been some excellent reporting, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Economist, these places, you know, are doing really good work, important work, uncovering things as well as independent journalists. But, you know, I think, you know, the press has changed over the years. There's sort of less money in it. Yeah, these All these newspapers used to have foreign correspondents in all of these kind of places. And yeah. part of the problem now is, okay, so now Russia is a big deal. People have to quickly come up, up to speed on Russia, try to speak about it. What's the easiest thing to do? Just ask 
Vladimir Putin the same questions you ask the U.S. president, and therefore you've done reporting sometimes. And so that stuff gets on TV and sort of, you know, to, to most audiences who aren't reading all these things and digging in, that seems to be enough. And so you're like, well, what's the problem? Exactly, you know, exactly. Uh, you know, yeah. yeah. And one of the things that Putin learned a long time ago is you can just swamp people with information. And so I think a lot of he knows that if you just put out a bunch of crap into the, the system, eventually people just put their hands up and say, I don't know what's right, what's wrong. I, all this stuff's out there. And for him, it's useful domestically because he wants people to stay out of politics. And so if they all just give up, that's good for him. And I see that happening in the States now. It's too, everybody's just like, I can't keep up with this stuff. I'm just not playing. And, and that allows authoritarians to sort of do their bidding business yeah. then. Yeah. 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 Steve, any comments on that? I, I, the, the last thing that John said is, I think, is is really important, um, and it has to do with you know how the how the Russians uh, do disinformation, misinformation, action, measure, active measures. I mean, they're so good at it. And one of the things, yeah. uh, oftentimes, people think that you know the goal of of uh, of a Russian misinformation or disinformation campaign is to get people to do X, and sometimes that's true. Sometimes they would like to do certain things, but oftentimes, um, Putin will have, will simply consider it a success. If you get to that sort of overflow point yep. that John was talking about. So when, when people basically just kind of throw up their hands and say, I don't know, this side says this, that side says that, yeah. this side says it's all fake news. I don't know what to believe. And they disengage. And that is a yep. win uh, for Putin and a, and a defeat, uh, I think, for the democratic process. Can we get into Michael Flynn for yes. a second? Because, I mean, Don't look, me this guy. Oh, <laughs> no, no. I mean, this is absolutely incredible. The damage. I mean, you know, he's... What happened? These are prominent people. I mean, what happened with him? What is going on? If I could explain John? that, I would make a lot of money as a, you know, <laughs> clinical psychologist or some sort of... Yeah. I, I don't understand. I think you have a person who was, you know, had an incredible ego, and he had to have an incredible ego to be successful in the area he was working. He had mentors who protected him, largely Stanley McChrystal when he was... In, uh, right. in Iraq and other places that sort of pushed him up through a system. Um, there's the old Peter principle in, in bureaucracies that say you rise to your level of incompetence. And I think he rose, you know, he was probably sort of a tough, you know, guy who was probably useful at sort of the tactical level, you know, b doing sort of right. things within a system where, you know, he's got people on either side saying how far he can go. And he got to a point where he sort of got full of himself thinking he was better than he was. You know, he was the, made the director of DIA failed miserably but then of course when he was pushed out was so angry and then of course probably to to you know for his mental health he decided he was going to blame it on the obama administration now steve and i know that the director of the dia is so low in the bureaucracy the president doesn't know who the director <laughs> of the dia is the director right. of dia doesn't doesn't go to the white house to brief this is that person has a boss inside the pentagon who's several layers below the secretary of defense so i mean this is a this is it's, but he decided, you know, he was going to put out publicly that, you know, Obama personally wanted him out because Obama didn't care about terrorism or whatever it is. So he created this fiction around himself, yeah. which then brought followers to him, which, you know, stroked his ego and made him think. He ran out to try to make rapid money because they overpay these generals because they think they're smarter than they are. And he got involved in all these kind of things, you know, with Turkey and Egypt and Russia and yeah. you know, crazy things. Nuclear stuff? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, so making making money and then, you know, quickly quickly proved his his, you know, level of talent by getting fired in 2 weeks working in the White House and and then sort of the, the only people who were defending him then were the nut jobs. And so I mean, I guess once you once you're living in in that 
nutty world, you start to now I don't I don't know to what extent he's smarter and knows better and is just calculatingly using this stuff or he's starting to become a nut himself. I think it's the latter, but I don't, I just don't know. Can yeah. I, I, I can't tell you how like. many, how many frustrating conversations I had with, uh, with journalists who would say, well, you know, you know, the senior well-respected Michael Flynn, and I go, no, no, no stop, uh-huh. stop right there. You know, that, that's, <laughs> neither of those things, <laughs> neither, neither of those things are true, but you know, there, there is one thing you have to recognize is that there, there can be no doubt, despite the fact that, you know, it was, it's DIA we're talking about. He, there's no doubt that he understood counterintelligence, basic counterintelligence. And because you, if you're in the intelligence world, this, you know, counterintelligence happens and it comes up and somebody at his, his level would have some understanding of it. So the idea that the director of DIA, who has, you know, at least a rudimentary and hopefully more advanced idea of counterintelligence says, yeah, no problem. I'll let our pay, RT pay for me to go to Russia to sit at the same table as Vladimir Putin, nobody's going to have any trouble with that, right? And I'll, you know, I'll take a little money on the side for that trip. I mean, you know, thankfully he was not at that point yet in a position of access, but anybody's, anybody's counterintelligence, you know, red flags would be going off everywhere. If you said, so we got a senior former intel guy, former military guys going and, and interacting with the Russian government like that. I mean, that's, that's, that's horrific. It's crazy. I have exactly. A- I want to. I- I want to blame Steve a little bit for this because Steve was in a position, senior position at the age. I'm joking because Steve's a friend of mine, but is <laughs> a senior position at the agency when Flynn was at DIA and Flynn got a, mm. a hair up. Well, he got whatever the right term is. He, he decided that the DIA was being disrespected by the CIA and the DIA should have be the natural place to have official liaison relationships with the GRU. By by tradition and law, the CIA is the place where we have relationships with foreign intelligence services, military and civilian. And so the CIA in Moscow meets with the GRU, meets with the KGB, the SVR, you know, FSB, et cetera, to, and, in, and in Washington. But for some reason, Flynn got all worked up. You know, this should be us. We should be doing the DIA. And he pushed and pushed and pushed. And everybody pushed back to include Steve, who is the one at headquarters, CIA headquarters, the project. But eventually, because essentially the relationship with GRU is a complete waste of time Absolutely. anyway, essentially said, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go do this. And um, it continued to be a waste of time. But, you know, they may have used that time to, you know, stroke his ego and make him think he was more important yeah. than he was. And he Absolutely. got yeah. into that game of working with the Russians yeah. when, in fact, you know, we probably, it was right to keep him out of it, you know. That actually, you read my mind. That was going to be my question. Were there any Mm -hmm. red flags? Because in 2013, he did go to GRU headquarters, laid rates for GRU fallen soldiers. Then come, I think, February 2014, he puts out the most bizarre tweet like, yo, dog, you ready to talk? And two weeks later, he meets in London with uh, that woman who um, ended up, you know, I won't mm-hmm. get in. That was part of the reason I think why he got yeah, pushed so, out too, because of that relationship. Would right? that so, have set off mm-hmm. red flags? I mean that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, there's all sorts of red flags with um, with with Flynn. You know, right, starting from you know basic competence to you know sort of mental health issues to all sorts of other <laughs> other issues that that would and and you know it's always. <laughs> I, we will, I won't get too down into the weeds, but you know, there, there, when you talk about having an intelligence relationship, and I'm using air quotes there for people who can't see this, the video stream, um, you know, it's not really a liaison relationship with, with the Russians because the Russians have no interest in, in really exchanging much 
intelligence with us. With, you know, with friendly services, you know, we obviously exchange a lot of information. Um, but nevertheless, you know, Washington doesn't understand the, the details of these things and sometimes doesn't want to. And so when you say to some senior person in Washington, Hey, look, you're going to meet the Russian intelligence services, but don't, don't expect it. It's like meeting with, you know, the Brits, yeah. right? I mean, this is not going to be a friendly mm -hmm. thing from their side of it. They may act nicely to you. They may serve you all sorts of, you know, wine and, 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 and vodka and maybe give you some nice smoked sturgeon on the side, but don't mistake it for yeah. some sort of real intelligence exchange. This is, they are going to be looking at you. They are going to be targeting you. They're going to be trying yeah. to identify vulnerabilities. They're going to be stroking egos. And, you know, the, the reaction to most senior guys, and I would not at all surprise me if Flynn had reacted like this, is like, oh, what, do you think I can't handle this? It's sort of a machismo kind of thing. Of course I understand <laughs> what, what this is all about. And in fact, they do not. It's, it's, it's not, it never, it never ends well. And so, you know, you, you're in this situation, whether you're the station chief in Moscow, whether you're a senior, senior person in, in, in CIA headquarters saying, look, yeah, I understand in an, you know, it would make a lot of sense maybe for the DIA director to meet with his German counterparts, but it just doesn't translate well. And there's a lot more to lose than there is to gain if you try to do that with wow. the GRU. And yep. Um, okay, you have five minutes with Biden. Well, not five. You guys have about two minutes with Biden. Okay, <laughs> you've got to give him advice, right, on Russia. We we've asked everyone this question, so you guys, okay, the same thing. So, what advice are you going to give Biden, the Biden administration, about Russia? Go ahead, Steve. You know, I uh, the first thing, the first thing that comes to mind is um, I think that now well recognized um, sort of pattern that happens. Um, with a lot of American administrations, uh, which is a new administration comes in and typically thinks to some extent or another, I can fix this relationship with Russia. You know, whether mm. it's a Russian reset, whether it's looking into Putin's eyes, you know, whatever it is, um, there is, you know, there's that sense. And I, I, I've come to believe that it's perhaps, uh, just, you know, maybe something that American, the people who run for president and win in the United States, just think that they, that they can do these kinds of things. And so they will. So, you know, if I had one thing to say to the Biden administration is I would say pay less attention. Uh, I don't mean collect less information. I don't mean don't be aware of, of what Russia is doing, but pay less attention on the international scene. I mean, why? What, you know, now we have to look at, they've maneuvered, the Russians have maneuvered themselves into uh, a position. This is something they do so well whether it's with Syria or Iran or North Korea, they put themselves in a position of being the only ones that, that the West can turn to to solve these problems. They created and that's ridiculous to let them, it's ridiculous yeah. to let them play that role. Yeah. Don't let them do that. There's no reason. So I would say, look, the, the, the thing that hurts Russia most is, is when, if they're a little bit like the Cubans in this, what hurts Putin most is when he's not recognized as a world leader, which he's not. No. He, he's a wannabe. Yeah. He really wants to Third be, but he's rate. not. So that my, yeah. my advice would be, if possible, pay less attention to him. That's right. He's a little guy. That's what <laughs> Stephanie said. He's a little, he's a little guy. Okay. He's a little guy. Yeah, that's exactly like how my... He's got to wear those platform that's shoes. That's how my family, same thing. My family's like, I don't understand why do Americans and Europeans put so much stock into Putin. It's just a mafia thug. Like, just shun him. Kick him out of all the Money. Western... Yeah. organizations and like don't make him part of anything sanction him and then at the same time you know if he does something give him a good kick in the ass basically and but americans yeah. americans have for a long time thought that you know you know when the russia came out of the soviet union 
massive country. We think of it as a European country. You know, the, you know, part of the problem is us. We need to work with them better. We need to communicate better. We need to integrate their economy better. Now, of course, we've had, you know, 30 years now to realize that no matter how much we try, and many presidents have tried, it's not going to work. And I think what we found now is, is Putin has been consistent. Putin has consistently yeah. seen us as the enemy and used political warfare to undermine us at every turn. He is not going to change. So if I was talking, you know, and Steve's point about ego is, is true. Like we, you see it at the presidential level, but you see it at other seniors when they come yes. in. I was in Pakistan. Everybody would come in and it was a complete mess and everybody would say, well, they haven't seen me yet. Uh-huh. I mean, personally, I'll talk yeah, to the exactly. ISI and I'll Macron do does the same thing. Macron does and the same thing. They all do right? it. And, and, you, you know, know, and then four years later, they realize, uh, uh, actually, it wasn't us. It wasn't me. It was them. And I, we have plenty of uh, we have plenty of, uh, of evidence now that, it, that it, this is this is Putin's way of keeping power at home, keeping his cronies, you know, rich and in charge. He cares about control and money. Those are the only two things. And so, Steve, Steve points a good one. We don't really need Russia for much. There's not much that we really at need all. to cooperate with them on. Uh, you know, maybe we don't need to antagonize them, but we need to push back when they when they push because they do respect uh, they do respect sort of power. Strength. You know, they're an a, it's asymmetric power that they're using. They're using the power of the weak against the strong, like a terrorist does, instead yeah. of hitting us head on. Mm. They look for our weaknesses and 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 push, and will continue to do so until we we push back. And so. I think this administration has lots of smart people. They understood that problem well. Um, but I think they came in and, they, and they've made this decision, probably for domestic political reasons, that China is the most important thing. We need to focus on China. Any mm-hmm. Putin, we, we, we've maneuvered Putin into a position now where if we push hard against Putin, he will do something else against us, which will then be used by the Republicans against us to say, oh, look, you know, when when Trump was in charge, Russia didn't do this to us. Now Biden's in charge. In other words, they only see downsides in, in trying to work with Putin. They just want to pretend it doesn't exist and push it away. Now, of course, Putin won't allow no. that to happen. He's like, North Korea, they need no. they need to create trouble so that we people pay attention to them because no one's going to pay attention yeah. to a country with the, with the economy the size of Portugal that, you know, that's sort of the other side of the world. So I think I'd tell, I'd tell President Biden is I understand what you're trying to do. I agree also that, you know, this country has to get China right over the next 30 years. I understand mm-hmm. your, your domestic political concerns, but trying to appease or ignore Russia will not work when we've learned that. Well yes, said. Exactly. Can I do a little applause there? That was great. Oh man. <laughs> it's true. No, yeah. it is true. Everybody comes yeah. in with this reset and everyone like, you know, in Eastern yeah. Europe and we're like rolling our eyes. Like, here we go. Another reset. <laughs> You're good. The yeah. Americans. Again, yeah, yeah. Here we go. Another yeah. reset. <laughs> Where can our listeners get more information? I'm on Twitter. I think I'm Stephen L. Hall one. Yeah. And I think John and I both contribute occasionally to, you know, various and sundry, you know, newspapers, whether it's the Washington Post or the, or, or the Times. Uh, so I don't write a lot, but if, you know, something sort of hits me, I do, you know, and I usually try to go to the Post or the Atlantic or New York Times. Okay. And, and I'm also on Twitter at John underscore Cypher. Well, good to see you, Steve. And thank you guys very much. I enjoy your podcast. So keep it up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, kremlinfile.com. This is season one, Kremlin File, hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Kamara. This is a Bunker Crew Media production. 
with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant Disney, Ben Brett, and Jordy Mycellus of Midas Media, with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camargo. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, hi. We got to start. Okay, we got to start. Let's jump right in.